Hey, Green Future Growers! Welcome to Season 3. I'm your host, Jackie Marie Beyer. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes for free or follow on your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing! Hey, everyone! This is Jackie Marie Beyer, your host, here to help inspire you on your journey to create, grow, and enjoy a green, organic oasis. So let's get growing. Oh, no, no, I'm I'm ready to go. All right. Well, here we go, listeners. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden Podcast. It is Tuesday, June 29th, 2021, when I am recording this. And hopefully we're going to release it right away because um, Alan Burgo wrote this amazing book, The Forager Chef's Book of Flora, Recipes and Techniques for Edible Plants from Garden, Field, and Forest. The photos are just mouth-watering, just like the recipes. It is a fantastic resource. It's um, published by Chelsea Green, my favorite publisher. Um, and it is just full of like inspiration and just things you're gonna love so here to tell us about his book and all the exciting things going on is alan burgo so welcome to the show alan yeah thank you for having me thank you for putting up with my schedule and technology and just sharing with us and sending me a pre-copy to look at and peruse and just um i feel so honored so why don't you go ahead and tell listeners a little bit about yourself? You're in Wisconsin, but isn't a lot of this, does does some of this come from Europe? It seems like when I was reading the beginning, it talks a lot about being in Europe. Well, I talk about a lot of different things. So basically, I ran restaurants and was a professional chef for a good 15 years. And after about 10 years, I started to see that some the most interesting things that would come into the restaurant, a lot of them were wild ingredients. They might first, they were mushrooms, but I would see, oh, the nettles came in. We paid $12 a pound for them. Purslane came in. We paid $12 a pound for it. Lamb's quarters, the same thing kind of over and over again. And, you know, your the audience is a gardening audience. They're going to know most of those plants as weeds. And a lot of times, and I do it myself too, we'll yank them out of the garden, maybe toss them on the side or just run them over with the mower. But I was, in, I was introduced to garden weeds from a point of appreciating them as a culinary luxury instead of something that needs to be destroyed. So that is, that's a big part of the book. There are a lot of different references to places around the world in the book. I am in Wisconsin, but I study for the book. I studied wild food traditions and just uh, plant and vegetable traditions from around the world, because a lot of these uh, kind of weedy garden plants, purslane, uh, European nettles, urtica, diowica, uh, lamb's quarters, they can be found around the world. Um, you know, so it's not just because I'm in Wisconsin, a lot of the plants that I talk about in the book, you can find just about anywhere. Uh, you know, watercress is a, it's an invasive plant in the United States, but it comes from Europe. It was probably brought over here 
by people who wanted to bring watercress over as a food or they brought some seeds over and all of these plants have really spread and they're, they're very widely available. It's so funny because yesterday or the day before, so we went down and we're doing the spinach harvest for the last three days before it bolts. And I have wild spinach, the orac growing in the garden. And I was just like, well, if I have to pick the spinach, I'm picking that wild orac too that has like the huge leaves and it mixes right in with it and tastes just as good as the spinach, if not better. It's got kind of got like a sweet, more um i don't know just like i almost want to say like a peppery sweet savory flavor to it and just to mix them together and just it's amazing the size of uh those other leaves compared to the spinach and i know everybody in america is always like into like the itty bitty little tiny baby spinach leaves and yeah they're good but i don't know and most of the time those spinach leaves come most people will know them as something you buy in a big plastic clamshell and they've been yes. washed they've been washed like 10 times and and one of the kind of core points of the book is you know is how i used my my instinct i i'm a forager so my garden is kind of a giant garden that I don't really tend that much. There are giant gardens on the farm where I live and I don't do a lot of tending. I, I go around and I kind of hunt the plants that will come up on the peripheries. And that instinct, that foraging instinct of I'm out looking for different edible plants. I don't know exactly what I might find. You know, it's a little bit exciting. I, I kind of like to say that my job is half Anthony Bourdain and half Indiana Jones, because I never know what I'm exactly gonna find. So I'm always looking and searching for things. And that that foraging instinct, it's something that I, I ended up turning that sort of lens to garden plants and it helped me understand them better. So spinach is a really good example. And I actually didn't have room. It got clipped from the book, but I had, a, I had an essay called Eating the Whole Spinach. And it's actually on my website, foragerchef.com. But I used to get, spinach flown into me from Oregon from a farmer that used to supply Alice Waters at Chez Panisse. Uh, his name is George Wepler. And George would sell spinach to me. The spinach would change every single week I got it because of the growing season. And he didn't send leaves. It was not a clamshell full of a bunch of washed tiny spinach leaves. It was The spinach only came as the entire plant. So when I cooked it, when I served it in my restaurants, we didn't cook spinach leaves. We cooked the entire spinach whole with its stems connected at the base as a vegetable. Uh, as the spinach got larger, we might cut the stem off and have the, the little cluster of stems at the bottom and then loose leaves. And we would cook the two pieces together. So we kind of cooked the plant differently depending on where I receive it in the growing season and its size. And we kind of just listen to, I like to say that we listen to the vegetable and see how would it like to be cooked, but I don't really cook spinach as just leaves. But that's a good example of how my kind of foraging instinct informed my cooking of garden plants. How did you cook it? That's so interesting because I took out... 
<laughs> a whole thing of the stems the other day and i thought about I'm like why don't i just chop these up and and put them in with the um like why am i peeling off the stems anyway yeah so i mean you can blanch them what we would do is just you know make sure they're very clean sometimes dirt can kind of get in the in the bottom yeah. portion of the stem there mm -hmm. uh we'd clean well, them really the really well too like mm -hmm. spinach is notorious for i was surprised at how clean my spinach was the other day like i didn't even have to change the water in the pan after doing like four batches in a row yeah but basically i just will put it in a pan with a little knob of butter heat it up and eat you can cook the whole the whole plant when it's small you can just cook them like a whole vegetable almost like a little bok choy or something and they're very good like that but eating spinach stems is it's something that people in america aren't really accustomed to be in my opinion because we're not shown that spinach has that to offer so that's kind of a key point of the book is you know using your instinct to look at the plant for growing in its natural state to see what it has to offer using your instincts instead of taking what a supermarket will sell you at face value as all the plant has to offer. I love that. Um, and I like, it's, it seems like it was my natural instinct because after I peeled it, I was like, why did I peel that? Why didn't I just chop that and cook it all together? And it's like, you know, spinach steams down to just like every night. I'm like, the plate's like overflowing and or the pan's like overflowing when I put it on there. But then by the time it cooks down, I'm always like, oh, I could put a little more spinach in that. And it's just, I just, I just feel like in the last three days, the nutrients going into my system, I feel so much healthier than I have, I feel like in a long time. Oh, yeah, I, I try to eat as many leafy greens during the season as I can. And that's, that's one of the best parts about foraging is I go around the gardens, you know, oh, the tomatoes aren't ready yet. Well, I am going to gather all these lambs quarters and this amaranth and the purslane and we'll cook that up for dinner and oh i you know a couple minutes five minutes in the garden i will have two or three pounds of greens and the lambs quarters growing like crazy in my garden right now yeah no it's it's easy to get large amounts with a just you know minimal amounts of effort Another really good example of how the book applies to garden vegetables, well, there's a couple really good examples. Another great example of kind of using my instinct with wild food and applying it to another vegetable is fennel. So again, we, awesome. go, to a, we go to a grocery store and we see fennel in a grocery store. What are we going to see? A lot of times, they're just, it's just going to be a fennel bulb and it's going to have all the green parts cut off because uh, maybe people don't know what to do with them. And as a chef, I would order fennel by the case and then I would get kind of frustrated because I'm like, I'm paying for all these fennel, fennel greens and these fennel fronds. I don't even know what to do with them. What am I going to do with them? It takes too much prep to clean them. Just put them in the compost or just tell the prep cook to throw them in the vegetable stock which is basically another way of throwing them away. Uh, but what you can do, and this is inspired by a technique of cooking wild fennel, which is mostly greens 
and not very large bulbs, you can cook the fennel stems and greens and eat them as a vegetable. And they're excellent. And they have that, they will actually have a more pronounced anise flavor after you cook the greens as opposed to eating them fresh and raw. And fresh, they can be a little bit like carrot greens, which I talk about in the book too. They're not the most tender I things. Saw that. They can be a little tough. But if you, you cook the, the fennel fronds and the stems, you simmer them until they're tender and they taste good to you. And then I drain them and I chop them up and I mix them with a little bit of uh, egg and breadcrumbs and Parmesan and you make little fennel cakes and they're absolutely delicious. I just ordered two um, veggie burger books because I've just been kind of like on this veggie burger thing. And uh, I was I was looking at that and I was like, oh, my goodness, this looks so good. The little carrot and fennel cake recipe. Um, yeah, there's there's two two easy. versions. Yeah, no, it's 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 very easy. And everything likes thing. Everyone likes something in cake form. You know, I feed them to kids, to old people, to my chef friends, and both the carrot and the fennel cakes are going to taste a little bit different. The other recipe that I give for great. I love that it tastes because I'm so like frustrated with like, you know, I don't know. I've just been trying to find healthier foods to eat and like veggie burgers. Like when I close my eyes and think like if I could open my fridge and what would be in there, I see veggie burgers. And if I go to the restaurant, that's what I want to order. And so that was kind of what prompted the veggie burger cookbooks. And then um, and then I was looking through your book and I'm like, oh, look at this recipe. Plus, I finally bought fennel from the farmer's market like a fennel start to grow my own fennel this year which i've never done before yeah it's it is one of my favorite vegetables especially just shaved raw in a in a salad with a little bit of a little bit of oil it is so good well, that's the only way I've ever had it. My mom always puts fennel. She's always grown fennel. And she always, my parents would have like fennel with their cocktails, like, you know, with like celery sticks and carrot sticks, like with their martini or whatever they're drinking before dinner. I always remember when we were kids, but she would always put it in her salads. But I just have never, I don't know. I don't know why it's not part of my garden. It hasn't been so yeah, I mean, it can be it can be things. tough to grow in some places in Minnesota and Wisconsin, where I am. Uh, it is not easy to grow fennel. I don't know exactly why, but whenever I see it in the market, it seems like people have been maybe maybe they were frustrated with the size of the bulbs, so they let the bulbs get a little bit too big, and then they're all woody. Uh, so it's not easy to get good fennel where where I am. But I love when I go to uh, the West Coast, when I go to California or San Francisco, I'm always on the lookout for fennel greens. Or if it's at a, a different, if it's later in the season, uh, I'll, I'll harvest the, the wild fennel seeds, which are just really, really good too. Uh, they, can, they seem to have an extra sort of sweetness and more herbaceous to me. And they look completely different if you just look at them. 
do they look like dill seeds i want to say i bought fennel seeds and put that like in potato salad and stuff before yeah no they look they look similar and i actually i talk about that in the book there's a picture in the the small essay called the botany of spices and one thing i talk about is and you can see them as, the picture is kind of there for a visual aid many of the spices that we use that are seeds they're all related so many of them are in the carrot family uh aniseed dill seed coriander cumin caraway fennel seed these are all celery seed too they're, these are all in the carrot family and a lot of times, kind of what I suggest in the book is that you can be creative with your seasonings by, if you see one of those spices in a dish, you can probably get away with substituting one or a combination of the other spices in there, uh, in the dish. And it's a way that you can kind of use botany to play with flavors in your cooking. And another really cool spice that comes from the carrot family that's all related that people may have in their garden are parsnip seeds, believe it or not. Hmm. Listeners, I don't know if I, if it was in the pre-chat, if I recorded it, but I got to tell you, the photos in this book are just unbelievable. They really make everything just just come to life and just uh it's amazing that he took all these photos you said you took these photos yourself right i i took every single photo in the book except the headshot where i'm in i'm in the woods in the beginning and i took about twelve thousand images for it and i i think i sent my editor about six thousand images for this single book and then we narrowed it down we had to cut a lot of stuff out uh, so there's a, there's a few hundred images in there. It, it's kind of heartbreaking to think about how many images I sent them, but uh, you know, I really lobbied to get as many in there as possible because they help as a visual aid, especially when I'm talking about things that are a little bit obscure, uh, like parsnip seeds and the related plant called cow parsnip, which is actually a native plant uh, to North America. And you can use the seeds of that plant interchangeably with parsnip seeds. And they have a very different flavor than any spice that I've ever worked with. They're, they actually harvest a cousin of it in Persia. And that's kind of the key that I use to unlock the, uh, the, the seed as a spice. So in Persia, the seed is known as Golpar. And they harvest it from a plant called Heraclium persicum. Uh, the one that the plant that I harvest with, I harvest from is uh, Heraclium maximum here in the Midwest, but it's a really interesting, fascinating spice. If you want to try some, you can buy it online. It might be called Angelica seed, uh, but using the word Golpar, that's a G-O-L-P-A-R, will you'll be able to find the spice there. And it is a really fascinating spice. You can use in curries and things like that. It's a, it's a very interesting, very special, unique flavor. But you can use parsnip seeds uh, if you don't have any of those wild plants. And parsnip seeds you would get by like, parsnips we usually think of as like the root vegetable, but you're gonna get the seeds by letting the flower bloom 
and go, yep. and go to seed, right? And then yep. so you would you would allow the the plant to go to flower. The flowers will get pollinated, and then they will make the seeds. And then you want to harvest the seeds when they're dry, and you can harvest them when they're green too, and they kind of have different properties, but you want to be careful when you're working with the green, juicy, above-ground portion of the parsnip plant. Because one thing that some people, that I would say many people don't know, is that wild wild parsnip is botanically an identical plant to garden parsnip. And when we say wild parsnip, most people will think of getting a photodermatitis burn or a phototoxic burn from the sap of they the do. green of the green plant getting on their skin, and then the sun hits it, and you can get a rash. Uh, sensitivity seems to vary in between people, but it could become blisters, and it's uh, a lot of people think wild parsnip is this horrible, awful plant, and it's actually the same plant that you have in your garden. It's uh, they're both Pastinaca sativa, and the plants will cross pollinate. They're literally the same plant, uh, but you do want to be careful with the green portion of the plant. If you wait until the seeds are dry, uh, you don't have to worry about it at all because there's no plant juices that will get on you. And from there, I talk about Angelica as well, uh, very closely there in the book and this uh, mm -hmm. in close proximity. And Angelica is in the carrot family too. And it will also give people a phototoxic burn. It's also a traditional food. And some people, many plants in the carrot family will do this. The greens of carrot, uh, the juices of carrot greens could give some people a burn. Celery juice can give some people a burn because these are all carrot family plants. It's kind of a characteristic that, uh, that's shared in the carrot family. Tell us more about some of the other recipes in the book i mean oh, my mouth just waters every time i go through this book there's so many great things to eat in here uh and i love the way you've just like tied together all these stories with it like it's just put together really well yeah there's lots of stories of uh kind of wild food traditions from around the world a, a good example of one is I talk about it in the beginning of the book, and it's uh, the original essay was called Sansai Horta and Kelites, and also Piante Spontane, which is the Italian version. So Sansai, Horta, and Kelites, these are all, these are terms, Sansai is from Japan, Horta is from Greece or Crete in the Mediterranean, and Kelites is from Latin America. And all of these names are a way of describing a large group of edible wild plants as kind of an affectionate term of endearment. And they do, these terms don't, they don't apply to a single plant, but it's a whole bunch of them. Uh, so the sansai might refer to Japanese knotweed or the shoots of the Japanese angelica tree, Aralia elata. Um, and it also will refer to hostas and bracken ferns, which they might call warabi. So it's a whole bunch of different plants. And then horta is basically the same thing, but it is in Greece and it 
typically I see it referring to different plants in the aster family. So aster family is the dandelion family and the, the sunflower family, same family, daisies. And you might see wild chicory in there. You might see dandelions, uh, the calites. Again, same thing in Latin America. It's a term of endearment. It kind of means little small things, like little cute things. And that's going to refer to uh, a bunch of different things, but lamb's quarters, amaranth, purslane, or verdolagas, as they call them, along with uh, another leguminous plant called the uh, chipigine or chipiline, which is a, it's a, a bean, like a bean leaf, uh, kind of like a kind of like a pea shoot if a pea shoot uh, had a woody stem and you would strip the leaves off. So these, I just found it so fascinating. And there's a number of different examples of things like in the book, I found it so fascinating that all these different cultures around the world all individually came up with different ways to describe these groups, large groups of wild plants that they like to harvest and eat. And the Sansai is particularly interesting because most people that I know in uh, North America, like in Minnesota and Wisconsin, where I am, they're gonna, many people are gonna have hostas in their garden. So a lot of people don't know that they can eat them. And hosta shoots are one of my favorite spring vegetables to eat. They're almost like if you took crispy lettuce and rolled them up really tight and you were able to cook them like asparagus. Uh, they're really just a great vegetable and you can eat the flowers. Uh, you can eat the unopened flower buds. I have a, a friend online who was just cooking them as she would uh, little artichokes, uh, like the carchofi. So there's lots of different examples of things like that in the book, but those are some of my favorite kind of different cultural examples from around the world that I tried to share. That was the next one I was going to ask you about because coincidentally, I also bought edible sunflower seeds this year. And I see that you have pictures of like eating the actual head of the sunflower like before. Because I always talk about like if I don't get my sunflower seeds, if I don't get them planted by Earth Day, April 22nd, they're not going to go to seed to make like bird seed. But it looks like you're cutting like a sunflower head before the sunflower seeds actually like when they're like a fresher at a, 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 a earlier stage. Is that right? And like you're cooking the sunflower head like it's a artichoke? Absolutely. So that is I got the inspiration from a few different places there. But I think one of the most interesting ones is that is a traditional preparation used by Native Americans in North America. So they, you know, think about an artichoke. An artichoke is related to a sunflower. These are both plants that are in the Asteraceae. I so, never knew that. My mom absolutely. loves artichokes and I am not the biggest fan of artichokes, but I'm like the sunflower girl. <laughs> yeah, so the sunflower, the artichoke, an artichoke is just an unopened flower. It's what I would say in botany speak, we would call it a meristematic flower. So it's an unopened giant flower bud. And a sunflower before it's before the seeds are ripe, it is 
eerily similar. And if you, you boil it, as I describe in the book, and then slice it up and season it, they, it's got a stronger flavor, but it's also going to have a similar flavor, uh, something that I call the aster flavor, which is something that many, many plants in the aster family share. It's a little bit artichokey, uh, but I eat the sun, a green sunflower. It's on the cover of the book. Uh, it's one of my favorite pictures. I eat it just like an artichoke. You boil it, and then you will scrape the unripe seeds out and cut off the leaves. And there's also a, a nice portion of a tender green stem uh, going going down underneath the, the unopened flower that you can eat as well. And it makes a really interesting appetizer. And it's also, like I said, a traditional food of North American indigenous peoples. So I thought that was fascinating. And it's also on the tables of some of the finest restaurants in the world. So 11 Madison Park uh, was a chef that I got some inspiration from for the book. And one of his signature dishes is a unripe sunflower cooked basically the same as I have uh, shown in the book there. And the photo is just so lovely. It's on page 132. I'm looking right at it. But that I'd like, I love that because one of the reasons I'm not the biggest fan of artichokes is because I just feel like the way my mom makes them, like you just, it just seems like you're cooking this big thing, but you really only get like a little bit of food from it. And then this just seems like you're going to get a lot more food from the same type of flour. I wonder if my cousin's been to that restaurant because he's a, he's a chef in New York and I don't know. He just seems like he's always going. Is that where, that's where I'm assuming it is. Madison Park must be. Yeah. And, and if he, if he hasn't, if he hasn't been there, I would, I would suspect that he knows about it. And the other really cool part that I actually just found randomly last summer, and there's a picture of it in the book as well, is unripe sunflower seeds. Yeah, that's what and that's what I was looking at is that because so many sunflowers don't um, don't get like I was saying, if I don't get them in the ground by the end of April, they don't turn to like the regular sunflower seeds that you, you know, roast and think of buying. And usually all the other years, I have always just bought like bird seed and planted those for the blooms. And this is the first year I've bought like edible sunflower seeds. Cause my husband, he turns to me one day. He's so funny. He's like, too bad you don't eat sunflowers. And I'm like, but, and then he's like, wait, you do, don't you? Cause I do put sunflower seeds on almost every salad. And so that was why this year I was like, I'm going to actually buy sunflower seeds that like instead of just planting the bird seeds for the blooms and to like like my dream has always been to like grow bird seed but like i'm actually bought sunflowers that i i don't know if you couldn't eat the bird seed ones i don't know why i just never have but these were like specifically like they sold that they're like you grow this and they were so funny because when i first sort of like what gave you the idea you could eat our seeds these aren't fda approved you can't eat our seeds and i'm like no i'm gonna grow them and then i'm gonna eat the seeds that i grow and so we have a lot of sunflowers growing this year so it's gonna be so fun to do something besides just eat the um 
the sunflower seeds you know after harvest like i'm so excited to try like eating a bloom and eating these white sunflower like the pre i don't know what do you call them like un, what do you call them un i i would say i would say they are meristematic seeds so a meristem a meristem means young growing plant tissue so an asparagus spear is a meristem and the you know because you look at the what does a mature asparagus plant looks like it, it looks mm -hmm. like a giant fern with little red berries on it and that is that is past its stage of edibility so yeah so another thing to keep in mind is that all of these things i've been talking about these are all very they're, they're relatively specific stages that you need to catch the plant at uh if you try to go and get the green seeds and you're a little bit too late the shell may have formed enough so that it's not exactly pleasant to eat but if you get them at the right stage when they're young and tender they are absolutely delicious and i like to cook them and add them to rice or you can put them in soup or you could just put them into a salad and they're they're white and crisp and kind of vegetal almost like almost like if you had a zucchini seed that was very pleasant to eat or a cucumber seed that uh but they're they're more tender and they I think they have a better flavor. They're crisp. They're they're just and you delicious. get bunches of them in one sunflower. So Absolutely. is that what artichoke seeds? Wouldn't like my listeners Eileen uh, Catron? She was the golden listener of the year from twenty twenty because she implemented so many tips she heard on the show in her garden, and she just posted a picture the other day of like I think exactly what you're talking about those red. I wonder if it was asparagus or is it possible? I remember her saying she planted artichokes. Is that what the artichokes look like too? Those red berry that looks like a raspberry, but it's different? Or is that her asparagus going to seed? I wonder. Uh, the, with, uh, without seeing a picture, it, it'd be kind of difficult for me, for me to tell. Um, but yeah, most of the things that we eat, most of the vegetables we eat are meristematic because that means the plant or the portion of the plant that we're going to eat is young and tender. So a nice tender zucchini, that's a meristem. A mature zucchini where it's got a leathery skin and the seeds are firm and they're ready to plant, that is not meristematic. That's a mature plant that is trying to reproduce uh, just mm. for general information. Huh. So interesting. My husband's about to plant a bed of asparagus this year. He like finally like figured out where it's going to go and has it all ready to go in the fall. Um, because we planted asparagus many years ago and just nothing. It, it just kind of like was in a bad spot and it just never really did anything. And like I would get like three asparagus a year. And so he's going to try again to get a new patch going because um, tender asparagus just like fresh out of the ground like i they never make it up to the house i always just there's just about raw, nothing better just right there <laughs> yeah they're they're one of the best shoots and i actually have a i have one of my favorite essays in the book is called shoots 
expanding on asparagus and it kind of touches on the the meristem idea of eating things young and tender that i was mentioning before so you know asparagus is probably my favorite shoot but it is only one of many different shoots that are delicious and available to us that you can enjoy around a garden so another one uh, and actually it should be the most expensive vegetable in the world Hop shoots are a traditional Ooh. food uh, very much enjoyed in Belgium, and you can grow them vertically. So it's a, you know, I just bought a house that has, it's a postage stamp lot. So I'm not, I'm not going to have a lot of space, but the first thing I'm going to put in is a nice big fence where I can have hops and grapes. And one of the first things I eat in the spring are the tender shoots of hops. And I can if I go to my good hop spot, because they grow wild all around too, uh, I go to my good hop spot and I can gather three to four pounds of hop shoots easily. And if you like beer, they taste, I like to call them beer asparagus because they taste a little bit like beer. And you can eat the leaves too. You can eat the whole plant. Isn't that interesting? Because we have hops growing and like i never do anything with it we never harvest it it just grows up our fence and just that sounds so good yeah so i use the leaves uh, i might blanch them or steam them just very quickly or just let them sit out and wilt and then i'll wrap i'll wrap food in them like a, a little bit of ground lamb and soaked rice and i'll cook them like dolmas and one of the other things I talk about, I, it's called the roulade vert, basically the green roll, is just kind of an example of people think of grape leaves being really the only leaf that you can stuff and eat when there are many, many different leaves that are large that you can stuff with food and all of them are going to have a different flavor or they might have different colors. It's one of my favorite things. I think that's something that's so special about your book is just it gives us such a variety of things to eat where I feel like so much food is so bland. And then, you know, everybody's trying to get away from bread and gluten and just what a great way to. And even like wraps are there's so many cat like I started doing Weight Watchers a few when I first got back from New York at the beginning of may and just like it was amazing how many points a tortilla had it was like there was no way you were going to eat a tortilla and so to have other things that you can wrap they and to think that i have like these hops just growing right here like that i could just go down and wrap something in hops is that sounds so cool yeah horseradish leaves are also another good one and oh really we have those too oh and yeah so horseradish leaves are they're gonna have a stronger flavor but i love horseradish leaves and they the leaves are very large you have to remove the stem because the stem is going to be really tough but you can wrap things in horseradish leaves uh the, wrapping a meatloaf in horseradish leaves is pretty fun or you can shred them up fine and mix them in with some greens that you're going to cook or you can blanch them to tame their flavor a little bit i'm not going to cook horseradish leaves and just eat a pile of them um but they are they can be very nice especially if you enjoy bitter greens like i do and a lot of cultures around the world do uh, is the bitter greens 
and there's a there's a whole section in the book on like bitter and strong tasting greens they like strong flavors so garlic ginger uh, a little bit of hot chili or there's even a recipe that's a traditional roman recipe i learned from my chef who owned his own restaurant in rome for 10 years um it's a spinaci alla romagna and you take strong tasting greens and cook them add a little you to cook some garlic slices until they're toasty brown add the greens and then you add pine nuts and dried currants or i might use dried wild blueberries and a little bit of hot chili and you get the aromatic garlic you get a little bit of sweet you get a little bit of nutty and you get a little bit of spicy i might finish it with some lemon at the end it's a really exciting way to eat uh, eat strong tasting greens Alan, we probably all want to come to dinner at your house and have you cook for us. <laughs> so you're not you're not a chef at any restaurant right now, huh? So my last restaurant, I was the executive chef at Lucia's restaurant in uh, Minneapolis, and it was one of the founding kind of cornerstone farm-to-table restaurants in the Midwest. That restaurant closed a few years ago. And the only really comparable restaurant was called The Bachelor Farmer. I actually switched gears and supplied that restaurant with wild plants, about 30 to 40 pounds a week of everything I could pick. I did that for a season. Even that restaurant closed. So COVID was really tough for a lot of restaurants. And I was kind of ahead of the curve. After the restaurant closed, I I was heartbroken. You know, I put everything that I had into it. Um, and I just, I kind of didn't know what I was going to do. So I started doing some consulting work. I, I work with a, a lamb and goat farm that uses only regenerative agriculture practices. And they make grass-fed lamb and goat that I work heavily with, uh, especially on the organ meat side. But that's kind of a different story. And I also, I have my website, which is where most people know me from, and my work with wild mushrooms. And I built the business in the, the couple of years after my, my restaurant closed. So I don't have to cook in a restaurant anymore. I do, I do a lot of filming. I have a show that, uh, that's going to market that we filmed last year called The Wild Harvest. I work with a distillery where we'll probably produce about 900 bottles every year that's, that are flavored with wild herbs and things that I pick, um, especially milkweed flowers are what I'm going to harvest this week. I'm going to get about 50 pounds of milkweed flowers. And if you look in the book, uh, there's been a lot of people making milkweed flower cordial and milkweed flower shrub this week. And it is one of the most delicious things. If you like the aroma of flowers, milkweed flowers are really floral and delicious. And they make a, you can make a syrup. It almost tastes like watermelon jolly ranchers if you can believe that and that's only the beginning of milkweed that a lot of people are going to have another plant a lot of people are going to have in their garden that is also a traditional indigenous native american food plant in north america you can eat milkweed at a whole bunch of different stages of growth and harvesting it in no way is going to harm monarch butterflies or anything like that if i harvest milkweed shoots and you can cook them just like asparagus, they're going to regrow and they're still going to make flowers. The flowers are gonna get pollinated. They're still gonna make pods and the monarchs will be eating them the whole time. They just might, the plants just might be a little bit shorter. Uh, milkweed buds are coming up right now too. And then the pods I like to call wild okra. And they are 
they are one of the best examples of a literal wild vegetable that I harvest from around our gardens up here that I just love. And there's a couple different really good recipes from them in the book. That's awesome because so many people think okra only grows in the south and they can't get okra, but every but lots of people love okra. So that'd be great to have an option for a wild okra. Yeah, and it's not exactly the same as okra, but it is pretty darn close. So I make little fried milkweed pods or I do a stew. I substitute it. I substitute very young milkweed pods. You need to get them. Two inches is the absolute perfect size. Uh, any larger than that, and they might be a little bit tough, but you can substitute them for okra in just about any recipe. Man, you are just uh, so knowledgeable. You've done so much. Well, is there anything we haven't talked about that you want to share with listeners? Well, one of my favorite things in the book uh, that, that's going on right now. Do you have any, where are you located? I'm in Northwest Montana. Oh, you're in Montana. Do you have any black walnut trees around? I don't know. <laughs> I know my husband's always like, I want a walnut tree. I don't know. I'm sorry to say. Well, I'm guessing that some of your listeners may have a black walnut tree. And right about now, I'm actually going out to harvest. My, my goal is 300 pounds of black walnuts that I will harvest. Uh, and I give them to the distillery. And these, I'm obviously harvesting Walnuts are not going to be mature and ready until the fall when they start to drop. I harvest them. There's traditions from around the world, again, of harvesting walnuts when they are meristematic and young and tender. So when the walnuts are green and on the tree, you can harvest them and make all kinds of things from them. There's a recipe for, uh, in England, they make walnut ketchup and it ends up tasting a little bit like A1. In Italy, they harvest green walnuts uh, and it should be like July something. It, it's a day that coincides with an Italian saint, go figure. And you cut the walnuts up and you put them into Everclear or vodka and you add some spices and lemon peel and then you add some simple syrup at the end, and it takes about six months to get to for the tannins to soften. They're very tannic, and what you get is basically a substitute for Jägermeister. Uh, the my favorite thing though to make out of the black walnuts, uh, I'm actually gonna harvest a good amount of them so that I can serve it to about 200 people at the Mother Earth News Fair that I'll be speaking at in Texas this year. Is it's called Kalitha Glico or glico, I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, or it might be called walnut jam. And this is a preserve of young walnuts. You could use black walnuts or, uh, or English walnuts. And you harvest them when they're green, when they're about the size of a ping pong ball. And you need to be able to cut through them with a knife. They need to be young and tender. And you peel them with a vegetable peeler. And then you pierce them all over with a fork. And then you simmer them in a really dense sugar syrup flavored with lemon peel and a plant that's a wild plant that grows all over the United States called Gallium triflorum. And it's basically a substitute for vanilla bean. 
And I actually have a recipe for wild vanilla extract you can make from this plant, which is basically a weed. And you can go harvest, I could harvest pounds and pounds and pounds of it easily. And you simmer the walnuts in that syrup with the spices or whatever you have. And then you put them in a jar, turn it upside down and let it sit for a few months. I just opened up a jar that was, uh, I'd let sit for a year for a wedding that I cooked last week. And you eat, you might cut them in half and the sugar syrup penetrates into the young walnut and you eat the entire walnut before the nut and the shell has formed. And it's one of the most interesting things that I have ever eaten. Oh, that sounds so good. Ellen, I can't believe how amazing you are and just all the things that you've done in your life and studied and just written in this amazing book that's just filled with um, inspiration and knowledge and tied in with these essays that you've written and your passion just comes through and just thank you so much for sharing all of this with us today and just sharing your journey and just I I just feel like I just like so I'm writing a book called Rock, like are you a millennial like you seem like you have so much experience you can't be that young but like were you born between 1980 and 95 I I am I I was I was born in 1985 and I mean all of this yeah, I've I've studied. I put I put my dues in. I worked for 15 years behind the stove. Being a professional chef was the only thing I knew. I thought it was the only thing that I would ever know. Uh, but I started studying wild plants and mushrooms probably 10 years ago. And for many years, all I did was work. You know, restaurant shifts are a good 10, 12 hours a day, or maybe more. And I would go out before the restaurant shift and look for mushrooms to put on the menu because I worked at a place where I would rewrite the menu new every single day with ingredients that I would go out and harvest before work. And then after work, I would go home and I would write about what I was harvesting on my website. So it is, I, I made a lot of sacrifices to, I made a lot of sacrifices for the sake of knowledge and it, it was not easy you know, I did. I didn't have a social life. It, no one wants to date a chef because you're. <laughs> the women seem to run for the hills because you're. You're never around. You know, you might see me one day a week, and then oh, if someone called in sick for brunch, you're not going to see me at all. It, I made a lot of sacrifices uh, for for the sake of of learning and knowledge. You know, but thank you very much. Well, I've really done my on. fair time in kitchens and worked with chefs and prep cooks and dishwashers and um, the back end. And my, like, for a long time, like, I've tried to get chefs to come on because a lot of my listeners, like, one question I want to ask you really quick before we end is, like, if somebody wants to bring food to a chef, like, I have found that that's kind of a struggle my listeners have like and I wanted to do a whole series of those conversations like how do you approach a chef in a restaurant and I couldn't get any chefs because they are so busy like you said to talk to me so like do you have any like advice for like somebody who's maybe growing something like 
how do they approach somebody like you to try to get you to take some of these and or like even one restaurant i worked in they wouldn't let me bring my oregano or my basil from my house to help flavor their food because they're like oh you're not an official garden and like you don't have like uh whatever you're not like spokane produce i don't know yeah that's a it's a great question and I mostly I get I get a lot of inquiries online from foragers who want to try to sell things that they harvest to restaurants. And it's kind of like the Wild West. Uh, gar- gardening is, I would say it's probably it's probably even more difficult because there's more competition. You know, you have farmers markets. Uh, chefs have chefs can be really stuck up, right? They have a tendency to think, I have this list of people that will bring me anything I want at any time. I'm the master of this domain. And they get very insulated in, in their world. Uh, but one of, the good, one of the best ways to get a foot in the door is by growing things that are really, really interesting. So for example, lovage. I talk about lovage in the book. And you have to think like a chef, right? There is no shortage of zucchini. There is no shortage of, say, tomatoes. Those are going to be a pretty stiff market to get into. But growing things that other people do not grow, that chefs might be interested in, that is like catnip. Ingredients that a chef cannot get are catnip to chefs. They want to be the only person on the block with XYZ ingredient. So what you could do, try growing a really interesting plant like that or asking a chef, hey, is, are there things that you cannot get that you would like me to grow? And then you say, okay, well, I will bring you a pound of lovage a week, which is a, a good amount that, that could supply a restaurant for at least a week or more. And if you want the lovage, it's not worth my time to only bring you lovage. I'm going to need you to get some other things. So maybe you'd like this cilantro and this really good variety of basil, and then you want some of these tomatoes too, and some of the other things that I'm growing, or these really, really delicious young pea shoots, uh, or the lamb's quarter. Uh, nettles, lamb's quarters, and purslane, like I said before, the commercial price for those is $12 a pound. That is more than just about any kind of really good lettuce that I ever bought. And those, if you have enough area, you don't even really need to tend them. Uh, my best my best spot for lamb's quarter in our garden here on the farm is a compost pile. And when I want more lamb's quarters, we mow it down because mowing is a really good way to mimic the grazing of ruminants. Like a cow would come and eat all the greens and what, what happens when you cut a plant down? It makes more young, tender growth, which is just what chefs want. You know, most people, if they, if they go out and they see, oh, there's lamb's quarters or some amaranth or something, a lot of times it's going to be older and it's not going to be tender and nice. If you cut those plants down and you encourage them to grow and you get them when they're young and tender, you can add wild plants and to diversify your product line and chefs will want them. So part of what I try to do, part of what I see my job as being 
is an ambassador of wild foods, you know, to chefs, to gardeners who sell things to kind of say, you know, hey, there's value in wild plants. When you're weeding the garden, you could be tearing dollars out of it. And if you gave those purslane plants a wash, you might be able to bring them to the farmer's market and sell them alongside your other things. Well, I just saw dandelion leaves for sale when I was in New York at my mom's grocery store. So I think people's minds are coming around. And these are golden seeds you're dropping, Alan. I know my listeners are going to love this interview. Thank you so much for sharing with us today. And your website for listeners, is it foragerchef.com that they want to go to? Is that where you want people to connect with you or? Yeah, that's, that's my website. And what you'll see there is a, it's, it's kind of my life's work. It's a giant kind of uh, resource and reference about wild plants, mushrooms and meat in general. And I'm also very, very available on Instagram. I do a lot of work on there. Uh, I'm pretty good at responding to direct messages. Um, some there's a direct line to my email right through my Instagram, my my Facebook page to Facebook, I kind of have mixed feelings about because Facebook the, the algorithm kind of limits who can see what you post. Uh, but leaving comments on the website or sending me an email through Instagram or leaving a comment is a really great way to uh, to get a hold of me too. And make sure listeners you check out Alan's book, The Forager Chef's Book of Flora. And when you love it as much as I do, make sure you leave him a five-star review on Amazon published by Chelsea Green, who, um, you know, is just one of the, they just are to me. (laughs) I love their books. My bookshelf is full of books from Chelsea Green. I've just been following, like there was a point where I wanted to move to like Vermont to work for Chelsea Green Publishing. I just think they are, they just they just do a great job and so congratulations to you for cracking um for getting getting them to publish your book because i've sent them lots of submissions and they haven't uh they haven't picked up anything yet so but someday anyway oh and your photos are just so lovely your website is just phenomenal and just everything you do thank you for being a rock star millennial and changing our world for the better and teaching people about all these great things that they can eat locally and encouraging us to, you know, expand our palates and, 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 and savor these things that are growing in our yards and in our gardens and maybe helping make our world more environmentally friendly by not like, just looking at everything, just helping people look at things in a different way. I don't know. Thank you. No, thanks, Jackie. This is great to be on. Well, you have a great day. Hey, listeners. Are you wondering how you can grow your own healthy and nutritious food with confidence? Have you been frustrated as a gardener? Does the thought of weeding make your back ache? Have you tried to grow a garden before and found you can't even keep a plant alive? Does the cost of organic produce in the store make you cringe, but the thought of bugs in your garden make your skin crawl? Well, we have the answer for you. FreeGardenCourse.com. It is so easy. You enter your email. 
you will watch a video right there. You can get my Organic Oasis checklist, our Essential Tools checklist. It all shows up right on the thank you page, freegardencourse.com. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening, and remember, grow local.